0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Macmillan Audio. Experience the world of Dune, now a major motion picture in audio. The audiobook of Frank Herbert's science fiction masterpiece features a full cast that brings a new generation to the classic series. Available wherever audiobooks are sold. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Do you know what a huipil is? You've probably seen one at some point. They're ubiquitous in a lot of Mexico and Central America. Here in L.A., you see them on the street all the time. It's a sort of blouse, sometimes longer, like a dress. If you imagine it flat on a table, it is long and rectangular with a hole in the middle. The hole is for the head, the sides flap down on your front and back. Sometimes they're closed below the arms. Simple, clean, and square. Or a rebozo. Have you ever heard of a rebozo? It's one long length of fabric. You can wrap it around your body, wear it almost like a shawl, or you can even carry a baby with it. In fact, someone just carried a baby in one past my office window. These are clothing forms that are native to Latin America, and they're often central to identity. Intensely regionally specific, generations of weavers in one small town making one very specific style. If you have the eye, you can spot someone from Chichicastanango in Guatemala or Ojitlan in Oaxaca. My guest Carla Fernandez grew up surrounded by these forms. She's a fashion designer. She lives in Mexico City, where people from all over Latin America come together. I was in Mexico City a few months ago with my mom, who... Coincidentally, used to be a conservator of Latin American textiles. We found ourselves at the Museo Franz Mayer. We didn't go in with any particular agenda, other than to see this big collection of silver they have turned out to be closed. But an exhibit of Fernandez's clothes absolutely took my breath away. When I walked in, I was handed an 11 by 17 piece of paper. At the top, it said, Manifesto of Fashion as Resistance. The first sentence is, One day we woke up and realized that we couldn't care less about what happens in Paris. It's a vision for fashion that is deeply rooted in place and tradition, but no less creative or revolutionary for having those roots. To be original, it says, is to go back to the origin. To design the clothes, Fernandez brought a mobile design lab to the homes of traditional masters, weavers who make rebosos and repeals, embroiderers who make the incredible black-and-white suits that charro horseback riders wear, the people who carve the wooden muddles used to make hot chocolate. And together, they made clothes. It was a true partnership, as the manifesto says, our relationships with the communities we collaborate are abiding and fond. Every craftsperson is credited given equal billing with Fernandez, and the clothes themselves live both within a deep tradition and invent that tradition anew. As they put it in the manifesto, we raise our voice and join the song that makes the serpent's tail flick back and forth as it moves between past and present. The future is handmade. It was, frankly, one of the best things I have ever seen in a museum, and the clothes themselves, the actual clothes—I went to the store, too— are completely real and wearable and beautiful. I can't tell you how excited I am to bring you this conversation with Carla Fernandez. Carla Fernandez, welcome to Bullseye. I am so happy to have you on the show. I'm so happy that you could make it.
2: Thank you, Jesse. I'm very happy to be here as well.
1: It sounded like you got <laughs> caught in some airplane trouble on the way in, so thank you.
2: Yes, we had a big storm yesterday, so I almost couldn't land, but here I am, happy to be with you.
1: Did you always want to make clothes?
2: I think um, the answer is yes. I always wanted to make clothing. I When I was very young, I started to make my own clothes. They usually came very, very wide. And you could fit two carlas in the same pants. But um, <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the very very early stage of my life, I made my own clothing. And this continues to be what I love to do.
1: Who helped you learn to do it?
2: Well, at the beginning, it was just um, I was copying pants, like the patterns. I would put them flat on a table and I will copy the pattern. And And, you know, when you're very young, you just try to make your best effort and um, and obviously it all went the other way around. And then I wanted to study fashion, but I couldn't because there was not a degree on fashion in Mexico. So what I did is I studied art history at la Universidad Iberoamericana. And then I made a degree at La Universidad eh, Ibero-Mexicana on being a seamstress with an amazing seamstress that was part of the atelier of Valenciaga. So I would study in the morning to get my degree of um, fashion history. And then in the evenings, I would pay my classes of seamstress, giving a class of um, the history of dress. And I would complete. So I had an all day long Studying and then working as well for museums to pay my apartment.
1: You grew up in Mexico City, but you had family in northern Mexico. Where did you buy clothes, or where did your family buy clothes?
2: I was born in Saltillo, Coahuila, that is the border with Texas. And my family still now, we enjoy very much to cross the border and find like secondhand vintage clothing. And um, that's how I grew up, you know, like with um, with this vision of uh, second-hand clothing being the most cool <laughs> and amazing clothes. And then on the other side, my, my father used to take us to the south of Mexico and uh, mainly where the indigenous communities are based uh, because he was the director of the museums of um, the Institute of Anthropology. So I would knew my country very, very well. And I would mix the amazing clothing that I would uh, buy in the South with the vintage clothing that I would see in the thrift stores or in the Salvation Army clothes uh, in the North of Mexico.
1: Sometimes people ask me now, like, why do you have a story? You're a radio host. Like, work on your podcasts. And for me, like... Since I was 15 years old, I was buying clothes at the thrift store, and that's how I got my spending money, you know? (laughs) Like back then, it was the 90s in San Francisco, so it was, uh, you know, clothes from the 40s. It was swing clothes. But what did you like to buy in a Salvation Army in, in San Antonio
3: or wherever?
2: Oof, I started buying clothing that I could easily cut out and make new clothes from it that was also like the 90s and um late 80s so it was very fun to cut up like the sleeves and make the sleeves some um pants or to make more sleeves than usually has or just to, you know like it was so <laughs> fun and uh, colorful and um and magical to just uh caught up and saw together. And that's how this story began of our fashion house.
1: You mentioned that your father's work often took your family to Southern Mexico. Your father was a director of the National Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City, which is one of the greatest museums in the world. And I was really surprised to read about him. So I learned that first. And then I learned afterwards that your parents met in college and your father is or, or was Cuban. Um, <laughs> so how did your dad come to be so passionate about the anthropology of Mexico coming from Cuba?
2: Well, my father left, his family left Cuba with the revolution he was very, very young at that time. He was um, 15 years old when he left. And my my grandparents stayed in Cuba until all the kids, they had eight kids. My father was the youngest. So they had to stay until they could all go, you not know, to, to go away. And so since the very early age of 15, my father was alone, first in the United States, and then he went to Leuven in in Belgium, and that's how he met my mother. They met in college. My father was studying philosophy and my mother history, and um, the story goes that this Cuban philosopher fell in love with a Mexican historian, and they decided to come and live to Mexico, And my father was um, an amazing museographer. He made museum design museums or museum design. And he was not the director of the Museum of Anthropology. He was the director of all the museums of the Institute of Anthropology. So he was the director of this museum that we're talking about, but also to all the other museums around Mexico that belong to the Anthropology Museum. So that's why he took us far away to the south, to the center, and also to the north of Mexico.
1: What's something that you remember seeing when you were visiting southern Mexico as a kid?
2: Well, of course, my father was, um, you know, focused on the pyramids and on the anthropological uh, way. So my father was taking us to the pyramids and to see the museums that are together with the pyramids. But I, what I was very surprised is to see the amazing clothing and culture of uh, the indigenous communities that live, you know, and surround these pyramids. We have to remember that Mexico has 68 living languages with their uh, dialects between them. And so Mexico is uh, a very rich country in terms of uh, cultural diversity in indigenous communities. And I was completely amazed of the elegance and the beauty of all these dresses. And I was looking at myself, quite boring, and just, (laughs) you know, like uh, I just could compare them with um, the pasarelas, the catwalks in the main fashion cities in the world.
1: What's an example of a textile or a garment that you saw when you were a kid that made a big impression?
2: Well, maybe in San Juan Chamula, they weave on backstrap loom and uh, they weave on uh, wool which is a, it's a beautiful also story because they don't eat the sheep in exchange for the wool. So it's a quiet uh, balance, um, interchange between the animal and the, and the weaver. And when I met first Cecilia and her family, we were inside of the house and they have like this beautiful enredo, which is a wraparound skirt, dyed with mud, that is an intense black, But when they went out of their house and the sun, you know, like uh, shine on the skirt, you had like these beautiful threads, metal threads, that they were like the rays of the sun. And it was just fantastic to see the use of color, the use of the shine and in such a sober and uh, elegant piece, you know, so... I think Mexico is one of these countries that you can use color, you can use metal threads, and still be the most elegant use of color that you can imagine.
1: We've got to go to a quick break. When we come back, more with Carla Fernandez. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
3: This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life teladoc health understands whether you have diabetes high blood pressure or just need to manage your weight teladoc health can help visit teladochealthcom health.com what's your why for more information that's t-e-l-a-d-o-c health slash what's your why this message comes from apple card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase an original series based on the novel by James Clavell. FX's Shogun is an epic saga of war, passion, and power set in feudal Japan, starring Hiroyuki Sanada and Anna Sawai. Now streaming on Hulu.
0: This message comes from the Kresge Foundation. Established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org.
1: Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Carla Fernandez. She is a Mexico City-based fashion designer who creates new clothes inspired by traditional indigenous garments. It's a revolutionary approach to fashion, and I can say as someone who has seen her work in person, just breathtaking. Let's get back into our conversation. You have an incredible manifesto that I found very moving and one of the principles in the manifesto is tradition is not static. What does that mean for you?
2: Well, we tend to think in big cities and in the Western world that tradition is not evolving, you know, that tradition is static, which I find that that is one of the biggest lies of um, these times in terms of uh, the Western world thinking about the global south or the indigenous communities. Tradition stares and evolves, and uh, sometimes, like, for example, the backstrap loom is in some countries 5,000 years of use, in our country 3,000 years of use. And this evolution, quiet and intelligent and slow evolution, that brings us these beautiful techniques and these beautiful fabrics Of course, they are um, contemporary, you know, and of course they are very, very clever and they have the balance and the beauty of uh, humans and nature and the community. So it's very interesting and uh, that's why it's one of the most um, strong points of our manifesto to say that um, tradition is not a static and we also say that fashion is not ephemeral.
1: What I love about the idea that tradition is not static is that working with textiles and designs that are hundreds and sometimes thousands of years old, or at least have hundreds and thousands of years of history, um, it would be very easy to say that the traditional way of making this is the only way of making this. And this is the definition of the traditional way of making this. And in partnering with people who make the clothes, you are choosing to say, no, this is a real thing in people's lives that is for use, that is being created by Not just artisans, but artists, people who want to make something beautiful, people who have their own ideas that aren't just robots who reproduce something from the past. And that's not a choice that you hear often, either from new fashion designers or from people who care about folk art. Because usually the folk art people say, oh, we want to preserve something. So... What do you say when you show up somewhere and someone is making the huipil that's typical in their town, in their community, and you say, I want to work with you, what do you have to do?
2: Well, first of all, we work mainly with artisans or communities or folk art artists that they ask us to work with them in the creative and in the productive way. So this is a collaboration between our fashion house and uh, the artisans. So for us, it's very important because that changes a lot the way of uh, the creation. And um, we have a mobile lab that is called Taller Flora that we sit down with the artisans and together we create, obviously always keeping um, the traditional technique, but making new designs. And at least in Mexico, if you go to the um, cities or to the comunidades where artisans live, they're super innovative. They are always creating new stuff. And it's only us being that um, foreign eye that sometimes helps to do new things and to put them out there, you know, and um, to work together in the creative processes. But Mexico... It's a very powerful country in terms of creation. And that is because of the indigenous communities that are always, you know, using maybe uh, these techniques that have hundreds of thousands of years, but always, always doing new designs, thinking differently, uh, dressing every year in a different color, making a new embroidery or a brocade. It's quite moving all the time, every day you will be amazed by the surprise of a new design in the community.
1: Let's talk about a few of the forms of clothing that are popular and have long histories in Mexico, specifically. Can you tell me first what a huipil is?
2: Yes, a huipil It's what we can say that it's like a long tunic, or it can be long or short, depending on the region, depending on how hot is the the climate in that region. But it's kind of the the dress, you know, and um, it's pretty geometric.
1: One of your principles is what you call square root. And a huipil is a perfect example of a Mexican garment that is made from squareness. Yes. <laughs> squareness is not a word, but <laughs> I don't have a better one. A huipil is a rectangular shape that goes over the body with a hole in the middle.
2: That's correct.
1: Functionally, why do you think it's important that that garment and other Mexican garments that we might talk about soon are square and not curved?
2: Because we have an endemic way of making clothing, and that belongs to the patterning that comes from squares and rectangles. Of course, there's many other countries in the world and First Nations in the world that use this squareness (laughs) of uh, taking the pieces that come out from the loom, the textiles that, of course, they are rectangular, and then put them together and make either the sari, the kimono, uh, the huipil, and it goes on and on. But what happened in Mexico was that during the conquest, the Spanish came with these tailored silhouettes that were fitted to the body. You have to see them in terms of silhouettes because the huipil used in Mexico it's all the piece or several pieces put together and in a square shape. You would not follow the shape of the body, the waist, you know, and uh, tailor it. You will see that when the Spanish came, the tailors, the helpers of the tailors were the indigenous tailors. And they kept these textiles in squares and rectangles, but they would pleat or fold, to follow the shape what was coming. In Mexico, that's why it became so different from other countries as in India or as in Thailand or many, many other countries around the world because we were mimicking um, another system of patterning but continue to use the essence of the squares and rectangles of Mexican patterning.
1: Let's talk about another garment that is uh, endemic to Mexico. That's the rebozo. Um, can you tell me what that is?
2: Yes, the rebozo is a piece of um, fabric that uh, you put onto your shoulders, mainly the women, and you, uh, you tie it in your chest or you can leave it loose. It's like a shawl, like a big shawl. And um, it's a beautiful piece because... When you're a baby, you are carried in a reboso. You know, you you put your baby on the back, and then you just put the fabric around that is made. Especially, well, you have a foot loom, or it can be also done in backstrap loom. And in the center of Mexico and uh, Michoacan as well, and 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 San Luis, it has ikat, it has jaspé, and then also you can carry things when you go and take some wood to come and bring it to your kitchen to make a fire and, 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 and to be, you know, like surrounded by your family in the fire kitchen, that is taken on the rebozo. And also when you die, you are grabbed with your favorite rebozo and then you are buried. So it's a beautiful piece that um, in Mexico is very traditional and um, we say that it takes you from when you're a baby, you're um, born recién nacido, (laughs) and it takes you all the way to your life.
1: Let's talk about one of the folk arts that is used in your designs, and that's charro. Charro is a kind of horsemanship. It's a sort of complicated, carefully coordinated it's like almost like a horse dance, borders on horse dance, <laughs> but like a, a very specialized form of, of horsemanship that's incredible to see. And the clothes that people wear when they're performing charro are a very special and incredible kind of clothing. Can can you describe what it is and, and what it looks like?
2: The charros are, we can say, that like the Mexican cowboys. They're beautifully dressed. They are all tailored. This is uh, completely different from the indigenous way of making clothing. This is a tradition that comes from the north of Africa, goes to Spain, and from Spain comes here. Uh, which What I found completely amazing is that the working clothing in Mexico, not only the charros, it's the most embellished clothing, the most intricate and the most worked on. You would see the difference between if you go to Western cities that they will put like a robe to cover your clothing down. So it's like a white robe and, or a jumper. And in Mexico, as, an, as taking a, and the charos as an example, you will embellish your suit with a leather fretwork that first is drawn by hand, glue with a corn, uh, glue in the other side of the, of the textile. Then with a machine of the 1940s, you follow the line of that drawing with, together with the leather. So when you turn it, you will have the leather, the line of um, the stitches that you will cut out with little scissors, and it's just fantastic. And the contrast that it gives with a black wool or with a striped gray and black wool, with a silver or with a golden leather is just fabulous. And that protects the fabric not to be ripped off when you're on a horse and you have the rope and you have to lace the cow. You put it around. If you wouldn't had that uh, leather, that it could be just plain leather, but in the case of Mexico, it's just beautifully designed and and has all these motives. Then it doesn't rip off the fabric, you know. It says no to the plan of obsolescence because it's made to last. Yes to what I love and how elegant I am here, riding and in with my garment, and it keeps going on and on. If you dissect this garment of the charros, no, and many others of. Uh, the Mexican traditional garments.
1: We'll finish up my conversation with Carla Fernandez after a break. She says she sees the people who buy her clothes not as customers, but as collectors, in the same sense as someone who buys a work of art. We'll talk about why in just a minute. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor HubSpot. With HubSpot Sales Hub, your data, tools, and teams are fully linked on a highly customizable platform so you can find, track, and close deals all in one place. Try it for yourself at hubspot.com/sales.
1: Oh my gosh! Hi, it's me, Dave Holmes, host of the pop culture game show Troubled Waters.
3: On Troubled Waters, we play a whole host of games, like one where I describe a show using a limerick, and our guests have to figure out what it is. Let's do one right now. What show am I talking about? This podcast has game after game and brilliant guests who come play. Them. The host is named Dave. It could be your fave, So try it. Life won't be the same. Uh, a big business starring Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. Close, but no. Oh, is it Troubled Waters, the pop culture quiz show with all your favorite comedians? Yes, Troubled Waters is the answer to this question and all of my life's problems. Now, legally, we actually can't guarantee that. But you can find it on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Jesse Thorn. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest is fashion designer Carla Fernandez. A lot of your clothes are unisex, relatively unisex. Often they come in one size. Why do you design clothes that could be worn by almost anyone?
2: Since I was a young um, woman, I had very short hair. And here in Mexico, that was not the trend. And... And they will always tell me if I was a boy or address me as a boy, you know. And um, so for me, it was kind of fun that because I had short hair, people will, um, you know, confuse me with a a boy. And for me, clothing has to be more open, you know, like genderless. And also you can see uh, the playfulness that you can, it's an amazing way to transform yourself and... uh, I work a lot and I need pants, you know, because I'm always like in the communities jumping. And for me, the skirt is not something that it's not comfortable. And I have to say that I love men in a skirt. I love women in a skirt. I love, uh, you know, like anyone that uses a skirt or pants, but I don't think it should identify you with uh, your gender at all, because that is something that you see around the world. I mean how many uh, First Nations men use skirts? How many First Nations uh, women use pants? You know, so this is something that is very Westernized that you tend to think that this piece of um, clothing goes for men or women or, you know, so so it has to be completely open and uh, it just has to suit you and you have to be comfortable and feel amazing and in that type of garment.
1: I want to talk a little bit about some of the other principles in your manifesto. You talked briefly about the relationship between ephemerality and tradition. One of the principles is that the origin of the textile is the earth. What does that
3: mean?
2: We also say that to be original is to go back to the earth. So for me, it's very interesting. These two points put together. When you work together with the amazing um, weavers in the communities, you understand this. You know, they grow their own cotton. They take out the seeds of the cotton. They Fry them and eat them as chips. <laughs> uh, then they make the thread, and then they start weaving with eight sticks that they take from their nearest mountain. So you can see the balance and beauty of these techniques and how complex and divine, you know, in, in a certain way, like a secret, sacred way uh, of making your own clothing. And that's why you, when you are in the communities, you understand that direct connection and dialogue between the earth and the weaving and the women that is doing it.
1: I was really interested in the idea that, as you put it in the manifesto, the wearer is a collector. What does it mean for the wearer to be a collector?
2: It's very important for our fashion house that you understand the processes as a collector, because they are so difficult to imagine, you know, it's like how in the world this technique that has, like, for example, the reboso. 13 different hands, that one rebozo takes up to two months to be made. If it rains, it can be even three months. If you don't show it visually or if you don't understand the complexity and the cultural effect that it has not only in the community but in the country or all around the world to have like these very complex uh, techniques, you will just discard and make this, you know, like trash fashion. But when you understand the beauty and the cultural you know, like uh, statement that is being made with these piece, then you become a collector and you become a guardian of those pieces, and you wear them all over and over. And you understand that we have to say no to fashion as trash, because many, many people leave making a uh, craft and folk art. And we have to understand this complexity and uh, wear it and uh, eat on them and, you know, uh, sit on them, etc. So we can continue and say no to this massive industrialization that is killing us all.
1: I mean, I don't think that a lot of designers, much less fashion designers, think of their work as pedagogical (laughs) like the idea that your work in creating new designs is also about teaching an audience who can then hold that story for future generations is a big difference from what most people do who make clothes
2: yes because we are historians (laughs) and we understand that we have to share the knowledge that is there, you know, and um, and yes, we need to bring more people to this side and to this understanding of um, the importance of clothing, especially because now it's one of the top ten uh, industri- more polluting industries in the world. So we have to rethink how we dress and how we think about fashion. It's very important for us because we all are part of this problem and we need to start talking about it as we start talking about it with uh, the problems in food and all these, you know, like slow uh, food processes, etc. So we have to go that way and start sharing our stories.
1: Carla, I couldn't have been more moved and inspired by getting to know your clothes, both in the museum and, you know, on people's bodies. And I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to talk to me.
2: I am very thankful as well. And um, I also want to say that the exhibition that you saw here at Franz Mayer was curated by Florence Mueller, who is a fantastic and amazing curator of fashion, and um it was also designed together with my Pedro Reyes with my husband, so that was also a very nice process. And just to close this, in the workshop in Mexico City, we are more than thirty persons working here in the city, in the stores. I have an amazing um, business partner that she takes care of all the the business in in the fashion house, and her name is Cristina Rangel. So we are a big family. Somos una gran familia. And thanks to that, we are where we are now. and And we can share more and more our clothing and our stories.
1: Well, Carla, thank you so much. I only wish that we could send people directly the pictures of these incredibly beautiful clothes, but I hope they'll look for them. And thanks again.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Carla Fernandez. As I said, her work is stunning. She currently has an exhibition up at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. That runs until February of next year. And if you happen to be traveling to Europe or live in Europe, she's also showing at La Galerie de 19M in Paris. That show runs through December 17th. And look, if you just want to buy the clothes, I mean... I can't tell you that I didn't buy some when I left that exhibition. You can go to CarlaFernandez.com. They are just incredible. We'll have a link to all that information, of course, and more on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I've been out on the road with my show, Judge John Hodgman, and uh, John and I were in Austin, Texas this past week where Aaron Franklin invited us to eat at Franklin's Barbecue, his uh, barbecue restaurant there in the capital city of Texas, and I ate so much and so many meats that I may still be sweating. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. I want to be clear, I'm happy that I did. Oh, boy, was it good. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the band The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team, thanks to their label Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on Instagram. We are sharing interview highlights and behind-the-scenes looks and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, we're at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We're also on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise.